Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gaiti. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You'll also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. The last year or more has been a tough one for all of us and the second wave of COVID-19 has been much worse. To help those affected by the pandemic in India, the podcasting community has come together under the hashtag PodForChange banner to raise funds through an exclusive NGO partner, Give India. Please join PM Power Consulting and the Software People Stories and hashtag PodForChange as we look to make a positive impact in the lives of those affected by COVID-19. Please visit the link in the description. Someone really needs the help. Imagine yourself surrounded by displays of war games, cockpit simulators, high-speed computers having incredible processing power, and then beetles scurrying around rescuing people using IR sensors. Listening to this narrative by Neeta Trivedi transports you to this realm of her career of 28 plus years working for the Defence Research and Development Organisation of India. The sheer complexity, detail and mission criticality of the systems that she worked on gives you some sense of what goes into creating the arsenal of our defence systems. She's worked with payload processing for unmanned aerial vehicles and was convener of a fascinating set of ideas around micro-air vehicles. Neeta comes from a small town and has grabbed every opportunity that's come her way to become an accomplished scientist. She has seen some extraordinary shifts in software architecture, technology, hardware, embedded systems, and how private players have become partners with defense organizations across the world. Her depth of expertise and experience are insights into discovery, development, and integration of some of the most complex systems. Cycles, clocks, synchronizing buses, managing drifts, and doing her PhD at the prestigious Indian Institute of Science, Neeta's story traverses a trajectory and leaves you knowing that there is more. Hi, Neeta. Welcome to the Software People Stories. You're probably the first person we have as a guest who is from the public sector doing things of national impact and magnitude. So I'm very eager to refresh my memory as well as for our listeners. If we can start with your origin story, you know, how did you get into IT? So yeah, hi, hi, Shiv. I'm really excited to be part of this, and uh, no, it's a, uh, allows me to also refresh lots of old memories. And uh, so I was just sitting back, back and reflecting. I come from a very, very modest background, a lower middle class family, and a very small town. So even the dreams are modest because 1984, 87, the exposure was not so much. There was no internet, no television, no Netflix, no discovery channels and so on. So we didn't know too much of outside world and uh, it was a small town. So maybe you, yes, one thing was sure that I wanted to do something like it should be different. It should be big. What is that big? That clarity was not there. So we thought that maybe we can become college professors or maybe you no know, good engineering college professors. That was largely the dreams. One thing for sure that uh, you should study a lot of maths and physics because that's going to be essential. That's all I knew. And uh, we grew up, got very good teachers from primary school onwards. Like, you no, know, they were passionate about building human resources, not not just teaching and making money uh, types. 
very very fortunate in fact it was small incidents that when my parents thought that they could not afford the fee and they wanted to put me in a government school two teachers came to my house and saying you can pay the fee later don't take her out i mean that's unheard of in general yeah. so grew up uh, in that environment very nice and uh, good people in 1987 when i was completing my bsc in physics chemistry math because we didn't have engineering college in the town and i don't think my parents would have sent me outside at that age and even financially uh, maybe they could not so uh, when i was finishing my bsc around that time uh, we heard about this drdo program so computers and software was evolving you know it was undergoing a sea change at that time and uh, drdo realized that they needed people who not just could punch in few lines of code but could really make software systems or you uh, know software intensive hardware systems so they invested in a national program uh, which was called msc computer science program it was sponsored by drdo they uh, chose five universities and they funded they uh, the in entrance was at a national level so the selection ratio was i think 3% or something so i was one of the first batches uh, out of 1000 students uh, there was a shortlisting and then finally interview and uh, 30 people were selected for the batch okay. and they gave 800 rupees per month as stipend to all okay. these 30 people that was a big deal at that time because 800 means we could survive it need not depend on parents and uh, yeah. then uh, there was a guaranteed job after that so drdo had a bond that uh, you have to serve as a scientist and class one gazetted officer so uh, no everything was very attractive just that after the msc they'll be posting in any part of the country and that had my parents worry a bit but uh, eventually all of that got resolved and uh, i went and uh, we did pretty well coming from a very small town hindi medium and all that uh, uh, did reasonably well there i think i scored third rank um, in the class finally and even then late, <laughs> sorry i said even though late congrats <laughs> yeah thanks thanks a lot i mean it was a big deal at that time yeah. there were yeah. people from delhi and south and everywhere and you know as such we were a little low profile yeah so then as posted to uh, delhi from drdo and uh, working on computerized land war game systems and uh, it it was uh, following dod 2167a life cycle model Okay. for software in trdo software methodology or process primarily came because of lca lca was a big program that drdo had taken up there were lots of challenges and lots of eyes were watching from all over the world and uh, it could drdo could not have taken chances uh, no to fail so they went a bit slow because it was a major program and uh, the industry was not what it is today so today we have software industry uh, we didn't know at that time how to make airborne computers uh, no industry was not there drdo pretty much handheld some industry and you know, brought it up uh, kind of because needed support so that time the software engineering methodology everything came in and even though we were not on lca at that time but 2167a was still followed another interesting part about drdo is a holistic approach so they send you for conferences they send you for seminars and in delhi when we were that young into software we met what samfri who's from uh, no software engineering institute carnegie mellon and that was a very very impressive and very inspiring session in one conference uh, with watson free and 
drove us even more into software engineering so it was like no although software engineering was very abstract we are too young to still understand the systems concept and requirement analysis and design and everything but still there was something to it which was very fascinating for me that no it's it's there is a, there's much larger picture than just line you know writing a code did pretty good job again there it was for uh, indian armed forces and i got reasonable acknowledgement etc and that's where i met ramesh so it was like we were he was in a different lab mm-hmm. uh, my husband he was in a different lab but we were staying in the same single officers accommodation mm-hmm. and one holy we all played and then when we went to terrace for a community lunch then somebody said it's ramesh's birthday today and i look back saying who's ramesh because he was very very calm and quiet and you uh, know so i i knew practically everyone else there except ramesh but okay. uh, then we became friends and um, he's he's a gem of a person so okay. finally decided that we're going to spend time together nice um but he was like i he was like not to be in delhi he hated delhi like majority of the south indian people so he took transfer he came to hyderabad then he quit drdo he joined a startup in uh, bangalore we got married i shifted to bangalore after that and i came to ade and i was sent to cockpit display systems group of uh, lca the light combat aircraft so far i have never opened a computer i have not seen the motherboard i have not seen anything inside although the computers were good there were sun spark stations and uh, no we were working on a very good software technology like oracle database and sun spark stations and x windows which was the happening thing at that time and you uh, know all of that but closed boxes and uh, cockpit display system the so- the computer was embedded system it was an embedded system and we see these ics flying all around uh, the lab which is totally totally new to me and i was a bit puzzled whether i'll be able to do anything there at all so i went to the director saying please change my group i don't think i'll be able to contribute mm-hmm. he says either you go there or you go out of drdo uh, there is no third way out so obviously i didn't want to come out of drdo stayed there in that probably was the best thing to happen to me uh, in life because lca taught everybody a lot you know not just technology not, not just software not just software engineering but the hurdles of the major program the interpersonal relationships inter organizational relationships and all the fights that associate uh, with it uh, we had some of the fantastic professionals uh, working on the lca group and of course dr kota who's uh, padmashri uh, uh, the program director very inspiring he used to literally visit all the labs he he knew us when we were very junior even at that time but he knew us by name and face <laughs> of course so uh, yes it was very hard because around that time even the us government had uh, placed sanctions on india because of the operation shakti the the pokhran blast that we had done uh, our scientists were overnight sent back to india from us without they were not allowed to take their pen and pencil from the labs you know they had to come back strength was anyway less because y2k had come up around that time and uh, private companies were recruiting anybody and everybody who could write four lines of code and paying them very 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 well 
so there were lots of scientists who had resigned from DRDO. Strength was less. Industry was not there. Uh, but you know, eventually we all sailed through. And the best thing that happened there was, so they, they, they were 2167A again being followed. Um, a very strict waterfall model. Lots of good advanced case tools. Like, no, we, uh, we had... At that time, we had a configuration management tool called PVCS. We worked with Rhapsody. We worked with TeleLogic. And you have to have 100% code coverage analysis to be submitted. Uh, you can't have any part of the code which is not tested. You can't have dead code. And even the... So there were, there were things like in uh, somewhere it says that your power on self-test shall not take more than five seconds. So... If it takes seven seconds, it takes and it's not a big deal. But then you had to go and rewrite the requirement that it's okay to take seven seconds. So not to that level, people had to follow a process because risks were pretty high. Around that time, we faced one interesting problem, uh, considering that the tests were at this level. So I was designer. Uh, somebody is there who is a test team uh, in charge. We have a very comprehensive, independent, standalone test setup. There is an independent verification and validation team from ADA who's coming and examining all your documents. All, every line of source code is gone through, etc. Then there are certification agencies. So the system passes through all of this test. We go to uh, another level of rig, avionics rig test, where your computer is being uh, no, integrated with the rest of the avionics. And there are all these cockpit displays kept there as uh, no, for next level of test actual INS there, actual throttle and stick there, and so on. Uh, there also, it passes. The systems pass the test. But when it is taken to the aircraft, we get a report saying that, so it was a dual standby. It was a mission-critical system. Dual standby computer, hot standby. So dual redundant, hot standby. One computer fails. Automatically, the second one will take over. The first one will do its own diagnosis and try to boot it up again and external commands given and so on. If the second computer fails, the first one will take over if it has become healthy. Okay. Uh, if they both do not, then there is a problem. So, And the problem is because, uh, because of that problem, you have to prove that your code coverage is 100% and uh, et cetera, et cetera. The, the, the probability of both failing is extremely remote. Mm. Now, the thing which was being reported from the aircraft was that one computer fails, the second one takes over, and first one becomes all right immediately after it hands over and it never fails again. The second computer fails occasionally again and hands over to the first computer, and whichever had failed, that recovers and never fails again as long as it's inactive. And this problem was so unique that <laughs> we were not able to reproduce it in the lab. We were not able to, code, code analysis did not give us any clue. I was still, although I was heading the software development team, but still not very senior. So everybody doubted that she's come from a non-embedded background and whether she knows enough, etc. So external groups, external agencies, uh, no, the Hyderabad lab people, everybody got involved. Code analysis did not reveal anything. Reports after reports after reports for years to get, like at least one year. 
and uh, every high level person in drdo knew about this problem mm-hmm. eventually it so turned out and it's a very 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 good case study for you uh, know distributed or federated computing the avionics cycle was 20 milliseconds and the avionics bus which is 1553b it's uh, the, it's divided into minor cycle and major cycle the minor cycle duration was 20 milliseconds and every computer had internal clock and uh, it was divided into 20 millisecond cycles but they are asynchronous the clocks are asynchronous yeah. obviously and 20 is never 20 20 is like 19.999 or 20.00001 or whatever and this drift between the our computer and some other computer was sometimes causing like after a certain amount of time which depended on when you power on our computer and when you power on the other computer okay depending on that this drift would build up after a random amount of time and there was one logic that you have to give a loopback token mm-hmm. if that token is not received within a certain period then your computer will be declared as failed so this computer was faithfully returning the token but because of this drift build up it was perceived as late response Mm-hmm. and hence it was declared as failed mm-hmm. <laughs> the moment it hands over to the next computer the load on this computer becomes much less so it has nothing to do it receives that token and returns it back so mm-hmm. it is perceived as recovered just a small thing however the way how do you debug so uh, we would it, you you don't find it in the lab you don't find it in the test trick Mm-hmm. uh because the power on cycles were different and in standalone testing that computer was anyway not there so we had to then instrument the code we had to go to literally the processor's fault stack mm-hmm. the uh, the normal stack of the processor and we would pull out all the data write it into a non volatile memory bring back the hardware box to the lab then pull out all this data analyze it so that cycle was pretty long and you had to wait for you uh, know the programs uh, to do the low speed taxi high speed taxi so you know there were lots of dependencies and every test cycle was very big something sometimes of the order of a month because yours is not the only system there are other systems and they have their own issues so by the time one from one taxi to next taxi there is there is some time required and hence it took this long a time and finally uh, we could resolve it it was a very interesting uh, case study uh, i can totally relate to this because as part of uh, my b project okay i was at npol that is the name of the oceanographic lab in kochi yes and um, i land there and then so i was told that this is going to be your manager and do that so he says i want you to build a clock uh uh-huh. what's a big deal i am a b student not like do and all that then he said no this is something that you have to build on they were trying to create a bit slice processor based clock which means yeah. that uh, you can keep on adding more and more bits and then make it more complex said so how big can it be probably it's a one week job for me and the entire three months i was there slowly i learned the importance of na, the clock synchronization across the moment you distribute it what works together na, suddenly behaves very differently yeah I, i guess they behave the way they are meant to behave but then we don't anticipate some of these things yeah very interesting okay yeah. so literally i mean so we have this assessments for uh, promotion mm-hmm. and uh, for my i think c to d promotion which was 4 uh, year span 
half of my slides were on this problem only because that's what we had done for half the time uh, pretty much so yes i mean no we also learned that what we take for granted that 20 milliseconds 40 milliseconds is never really 20 or never really 40 so it was good and of course there were other challenges in the sense that our displays had to be refreshed so no you have to refresh the there was a head up display which was a very unique novel thing at that time now of course it is relatively more common so these are transparent displays which reflect certain wavelength of light and transmit rest all of the other wavelengths so you project your symbology on it with that particular wavelength and the rest of it comes from outside so the pilot is able to see the outside world okay. and also see the symbology which is very crucial for him for flying uh, without taking his eyes off to see the other displays so like when he is into uh, deep let's say combat at that time he wants to see all the flight critical parameters right in front of him mm-hmm. uh so this thing had to be refreshed at 20 milliseconds there were other multifunction displays uh, so lca has a glass co- glass cockpit uh, which means that all those electromechanical dials etc are not there there's hardly any redundant hardly any backup uh, no instrument there except very very crucial so all the engine parameters the uh, no attitude parameters fuel parameters everything comes on a computer driven displays so uh, they were all there and th- they had to be displayed at uh, 40 milliseconds refresh rate and uh, you can't des- redesign your hardware every now and then um, the hardware is not cots because of size constraints and certifiability constraints and so on so you are stuck with whatever memory is available whatever processor speed is available so we had to optimize to very very great detail to uh, no initially the first version went through without any issue but then requirements keep growing uh, newer systems come you have to display that parameter on the cockpit uh, display only so display processor has to process it so slowly the requirements grew the complexities grew and uh, then we realized that uh, no we had to literally disassemble the code look at the assembly instructions and say that okay this instruction takes 32 cycles so what can you replace it with something else which takes 62 uh, clock cycle or 16 clock cycles or 8 clock cycles all the floating point operations how can you change to integer to make sure that you are able to meet that constraint so it it was a very very different kind of an experience at that time and we had to document all of these utilities which are offline like no you, offline we would convert some software into assembly language and port it even that has to be tested and certified so you have to generate all the life cycle documents for that as well then stuff like that so so that was very interesting very challenging eventually uh, one is that uh, as i said the cockpit displays are the pilot's prime uh, means of information he doesn't have anything else so the processing requirements started growing quite a bit mm. and it was also realized that uh, the majority of the traffic was between the mission computer and the display processor so they decided and and the avionics architecture was at that time shifting from federated to uh, modular avionics okay so no instead of computers you have uh, processing boards now mm-hmm. so you keep whatever is heavy traffic exchange computers you keep them in a single box with the motherboard being uh, no you communicate via the motherboard rather than the avionics bus so eventually the program decided that these two have to be combined we handed over all the hardware software everything to uh, ada and then i was shifted to the uav group 
in AD. So I was heading what was called the payload data processing group, totally different from anything else that I had done so far. So I had, uh, I mean, this was slightly unique that I had to shift from what I did in Delhi to LCA to UAV and that to payload data processing. Uh, that time I did express a little bit of uh, no, displeasure over my luck that people they do the same thing for 30, 40 years and become expert in it. And I had to shift. And during this time, I also uh, registered for my master's when LCA pressure had slightly lowered down. I registered for my, my master's in uh, IASC. And there my professor says that don't do your office work in uh, institute okay. in the sense that it can't be the same work. So because he says when I publish papers, DRDO will come and say it's sensitive. Or some of your colleague might come and say, this was my work and she has published. No, he, he didn't want to get into any of it. Again, he's a very big inspiration. Um, he's uh, Padmashri Professor Balakrishnan, very big name and uh, very close to Dr. Abdul Kalam and uh, no, all of that. And uh, a taskmaster. I mean, he will help you in all the administrative formalities, etc. But when it comes to work, uh, there are hardly any concessions given. Yeah. So there my work was I totally different. I, mean, I was also an IAC alumnus, yeah. Oh, you know Valky, yeah. yeah. Yes, so uh, then it happens that in IAC you're working on sensor networks, which is totally different thing. And sensor networks was another thing which was just coming up at that time. So from there, the IoT has evolved. From wireless sensor networks, the IoT has evolved. So I got into IAC just when the sensor networks had started, the papers had started becoming popular uh, no, on that. So nice, but yes, I had challenges because you're working full-time and then IAC and family, you tend to ignore uh, in the process. You just take, take them for granted, kinds. Uh, I've been lucky. Uh, family has been very, very supportive. So uh, that way it was good. So I moved to UAVs, there it was more of, uh, it was a ground-based system and they were following uh, MIL standard 498, which, uh, so 2167A, as you may be knowing, had a very strong waterfall bias, mm. waterfall process bias. Although nowhere it says that it is so, but when you start interpreting it, you find it hard to correlate it with object uh, the iterative methods or uh, no agile or anything else. Uh, similarly, it was very strongly biased towards uh, structured methodology. Okay. I mean, which is what was there at that time. So you have this hierarchical decomposition. You have the CSCIs and then broken down into CSCs, broken down into CSUs and uh, unit testing and then integration testing and also very strongly biased towards that. Very elaborate, very good at that time, but then things were changing. So this also had to change. So these people were following 498, the UAV group, and there things are a lot more different in the sense that now you can have a unit which need not be a software code unit. It can be database. It can be something else. Reusability concept was pro promoted. Database was promoted. You can have informal reviews. You can have informal records. It doesn't have to be in the form of a documentation. Very, very different. But what I noticed at that time and what I also read later was that it was, it allowed so much of liberty that people took a lot more liberty and then things started getting diluted and mistakes started happening. Okay. So I typically give this example that you have a 
two-way road and in between there is a hard divider. So you can only, uh, no, upstream can only go on the left side and downstream can only come on the right side. Even though, let's say in the morning, right side is pretty much free because everybody is going out. And while coming back, it's the other way around. There is a free space, but you can't make use of it. I call 2167A something like that. Uh, 498 in contrast was that you have a dotted line, uh, no, that dashed line, that when you have the other side free, you can make use of it. Or you can make use of it for overtaking, but not otherwise. However, like happens in Indian situation, people don't bother about what's coming. They just go and accidents happen. So then came this IEEE 12.07, ISO 12.07, which had something like a midway. So they have drawn this yellow lines and in between certain places where you can overtake, but not really go on the other side. Uh, so then slowly people started moving towards 12.07 and I had a pretty long uh, share uh, with 12.07 as well. I had got a chance to study all of that. And uh, image processing, computer vision, artificial intelligence, which was kind of evolving at that time. Uh, you did not have open CV, uh, TensorFlow was not so much there, etc. So we were still sitting and writing. I remember that our people were still sitting and writing mosaicing code, literally going pixel by pixels, uh, extracting features, matching descriptors and all of that. And uh, yes, so... Our one, one UAV was uh, inducted into Indian Army. The other ones were ge getting made. Uh, so all that was happening on one side. The more interesting thing which happened, uh, me being in that chair, uh, was that uh, there was this program called uh, Special Interest Group on Micro Air Vehicles. Um, it's, it's not strictly DRDO. It is uh, what is called Aeronautics R&D Board, which is owned by MOD. DRDO is more like... A, custodian for funds and uh, no, all of that for that. So I was made a convener of that group okay. uh, because uh, fate accompli, <laughs> they felt that uh, compared to other groups in UAV, this group was relatively less loaded is what was their perception. So um, they gave me these other tasks. This, this group, the Sigma, uh, was basically it would invite proposals from academic institutes and other R&D institutes related to micro air vehicles on any discipline. You can have structures, flight controls, uh, no, uh, ground control station, vision-based landing, vision-based navigation, anything and everything related to micro air. Even we had things like um, artificial nose, electronic nose. And uh, yeah, so NAL was working on that and they did succeed. I mean, it was, I don't know in near future, we may not be able to make a generic one, but uh, it could sense certain sensitive chemicals which are used for this making bombs or you know, other weapons. So uh, that was one very interesting exposure. <laughs> one, one thing which I remember very distinctly and like all of us were very, like, this was a committee. It was an interdisciplinary committee and I was convener come special member for uh, vision and so on. So uh, once <laughs> one uh, academic academician from one of these uh, remote universities or colleges, he came and he literally showed us slides. So people were studying perching at that time, how birds oh. perch on wires. Yeah. electric wires and no other thin uh, railings and all that uh, because we wanted to mimic that for making micro air vehicles uh, oh, wow. yeah 
so this guy had literally chopped off the feet of one bird he was showing us the picture of that and he was saying i'll attach a artificial uh, you no know, perching mechanism to it and we were like so shocked is it you don't have to do that so had all kinds of interesting experiences uh, during that time and general vijay sundaram lieutenant general sundaram who's now retired of course long back he's he's i think 80 plus now mm-hmm. he was director of uh, drdl i think so hyderabad then after that also he stayed associated and he was the chairman of this group okay extremely passionate about this technology and he was very 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 strongly perceiving uh, pursuing the uh, uh, cyborgs uh, case uh, no saying that uh, we should have so he had studied that you can do beetles you can inject some uh, no synthetic uh, uh, stimuli to them and when you give a small electric current they can turn on one side when you give small electric current on the other side they turn on the other side and you can and the beetles he says they grow very easily in india mm-hmm. and they can carry i think 10 times their weight so his dream was that we should carry these beetles to when we have this natural calamities like earthquakes or tsunamis or floods or whatever at that time when people are buried under debris you can't fly a micro air vehicle there mm. so beetles are the ones which will you can have a very small ir sensor on them and very small microphone so if somebody is breathing or trying to crying for help or just the fact that he's alive that temperature you know that can give you vital clue and then you can go there so he was pursuing that very very seriously then there was another program uh, jointly initiated by drdo and dst uh, which was called national program on micro air vehicles so sigma was like a long term building up the capabilities in the country uh, kind of a concept np micro was more program oriented so five years you must develop certain technologies and because india felt that we need to leapfrog into these technologies if you do it good slow space uh, other countries will take over uh, no significantly so this was a program which was again sponsored by drdo and dst and i was a member even there and we conducted competitions at national level for uh, no micro, uh, the mavs have to go inside a building and take pictures of people identify people come out so like no if it's a hijack kind of a situation um how can we send so very interesting work done by people at that time jain university and nal iisc so drdo gave me that chance to practically visit any institute of national importance you know so it was a very uh, very good exposure including i got a chance to visit mit georgia tech and uh, us air force research lab mm-hmm. uh, got to do a course in uh, cranfield university defense campus on elect- electro optic imaging systems for defense uh so that way it was a very good stint but eventually i just felt that as you grow uh, you are expected to do lot more managerial and administrative stuff than uh, no actual hands on technical work so i felt uh, wanted to come out so i took voluntary retirement registered a company honestly i had no clue at that time what i was going to do just that let's see you know th- thankfully financially uh, i could take that risk 
because of Ramesh uh, being there and uh, I'm getting my pension. So uh, the risks are lowered. I got a chance to work with Tata Advanced Systems at that time. So I had just registered the company and I got this call from, of course, I mean, through through a known person, he introduced me uh, there and they asked for my resume. And then they said, okay, we'll take a chance, one year consultancy. Again, they have some aerial surveillance systems and they were also in the smaller mini micro air vehicles, etc. Again, lots of standard driven work. So you have standards for interoperability of ground control stations, standards for um, how you disseminate the information that is obtained from the surveillance platforms. So there are international uh, standards. The only difference between standards in 1987 and now is that that time defense was the major driver of all these standards and electronics and software and everything. Now it is the other way around. All the industry is doing a lot of R&D. Defense budgets are <laughs> very, very, you know, going lower. And uh, they don't have uh, enough manpower, not just in India, all over. So now uh, there's a lot of research is happening and standardization also, uh, there is a very big incentive for industry to come up with inter- interoperability because... You're using Samsung phones and iPhones and you want to ensure that the data is, uh, you're able to talk to each other and stuff like that. So now when I look at some of those NATO standards for interoperability or uh, this data recording, so when I say data, it's basically all the videos, images, electronic intelligence, human intelligence, everything. How do you encode them? How do you transmit them? How do you store them, uh, retrieve them, etc.? Pretty much everything is being leveraged from the commercial world, except that they take care of all those encryptions and you know, coding and whatever stuff, etc. So there it was again, of course, DO uh, 278 for ground systems, uh, DO 178 for airborne systems, interoperability, airworthiness standards, safety standards. So a very, very interesting experience there, there as well. I worked there for 18 months. But what happened was I had the company at least registered. There were a couple of engineers, one engineer from the beginning. Others, I used to take some interns. But So they were there. Mm. But I was not able to do justice. You can't do justice to two things wholeheartedly. So slowly my involvement with Tata's became a lot. And these people were feeling disoriented. And I felt that it was unfair on them as well. So I must decide either I close this down or I quit the other part. So for good or bad, I took a decision that I'm going to focus on the company for some time. So right now, that's what I'm doing. Um, Initially, it took me some time to explore uh, the market and where I should pitch in. I did some three, four small projects, currently doing one mid-size project, which is a, a SaaS platform. But the Entire platform is not from us. There is some contribution in the platform, but there is an AI backend, mm-hmm. um, AI and rule-based uh, logic backend, OCR and form parsing and all of that. Okay. That I'm doing. We also have been declared lowest bidder for one of the DRDO projects. Oh, nice. Which is again doing something to do with the UAV images and satellite images and uh, geo-registration and all that. It's a very challenging and uh, long project. Uh, yeah, so that's that's in the nutshell that 
I have been doing. Yeah. It's very exciting. It, it, it truly rocket science type of things. So there's one question which I wanted to ask and later on when you mentioned then the, the use of more of you know, commercial standards and software, it kind of fits in. See, normally in the commercial world, I mean, this is again one of those terminologies or uh, terms that we've been using, is that we say whatever the software does, we say is functional requirements. Yes. And anything else, we call it as non-functional requirements. And then the way you describe you know, things about, when you talked about the uh, clock and synchronization, the performance, the encryption, all that. How is this focus on okay the non-functional requirements for lack of a, a different word and the need for when you talked about cockpit systems understanding cognition around making sure that when you said it's all glass and then they need to make sure that they don't get distracted and all that how do you kind of blend disciplines when you are either formulating the solution or implementing solutions Yes, so uh, yeah, very valid questions. Before just stepping a little bit back, uh, in the in two one six seven a, the distinction between requirement and design was strictly what and how. Uh, but slowly, it was realized that in four ninety eight and even twelve two not seven was that anything that is customer cares for is a requirement. Anything it could be what or how. Anything that he doesn't. Care like no, you are achieving your goal. How uh, or if you have to do some what uh, because of just to make the system complete? That's a design uh, decision. And uh, so next step from there is non-functional requirements. They are yes equally important. So when we write software requirement specifications, the functional requirements pretty much come from the users' uh, you know, written down requirements, mm. and uh, then. Obviously, the wise people all sit together, including the user sometimes, just to ensure that he doesn't have any strong say on any of the other non-functional requirements. And they are, they are also given, uh, if that was your question, they are also assigned unique IDs. The way the functional requirements are assigned unique IDs, non-functional requirements are also assigned unique IDs, and they are traced throughout. So if there is a non-functional requirements that has requirement that has an impact on the functional requirement, it goes through that series of review okay. that what can be changed and what cannot be changed and so on. So yes, fun, uh, non-functional requirements are equally important. They have to be traced, they have to be tested and verified uh, for, for functionality. Coming back to your uh, second question, you said you spoke about interdisciplinary or uh, I mean, that, that was your question, right? Yeah, because they're complimentary. not... These are the standards and processes you follow. But the yeah. people who need to do that, now we talk about left brain, right brain thinking and all that, which means now how do you blend somebody who's a very detail-oriented person, probably likes to write just algorithms, saying that anything that is displayed is all I mean, probably just the periphery. Or somebody else who says, I'm a user experience person, understanding behavior, understanding the environment, the context in which something is used. So when you either build a team, is it typically people with different skills or do you have or do people who work on these kind of solutions have to have both kind of experiences and expertise? Yeah, no, it was more of the first part Okay. that uh, no, there are. DRDO also um, evolved 
like no the the way internationally every organization was evolving so typically you may have one kind of an organizational structure but eventually you feel that a matrix structure works best so for example let's say you're working on four systems and all the four need expertise in flight control all the four needs expertise in structure so you have two people or 10 people team so uh, who are good in structures or who are good in flight controls or no they are specialized in fact they are even trained so drdo also trains people mm-hmm. uh, for uh, any specific requirement so this was a matrix organization where the project offices are on one side and the technology divisions are on other side and of course there are meetings where uh, everybody's view is heard that how if you want to meet this requirement if this change has to be made is it likely to have an impact on the other systems so you uh, know periodically these issues are resolved recorded lately so i should not say lately pretty much so it was dr kota and professor sudhakar of iit bombay all of these people were very strong uh, promoters of what is called multi disciplinary optimization mdo so they they started this study and of course drdo works very closely with all the academic institutes so there were so when it comes to core algorithms there are scientists in drdo who are good but uh, they also take help from let's say iisc or uh, iits and nit and all of that there are there are lots of provisions to engage with academic institutes at lab level at uh, organization level and all that so yes to answer your question uh, uh, algorithms there are core teams and there are academic institutes and other uh, organizations within uh, drdo uh, they have this technology groups and project uh, divisions it so happens that there are people who are cross functional or cross domain uh, but they are sitting in one place if the organization knows that he is also strong in some discipline then his view may be heard a little bit more strongly Um, as as it should happen i didn't realize how long we have been talking so we still have some time at least one question one of my favorite questions to the guest is for people who are considering a career in it or people who are mid career who want to know whether i should do this or that primarily the dilemma is should i remain technical or should i get into managerial now in your case also taking into account defense as an area of career when somebody wants to get in fresh what kind of future do you see and of course mid career since you made a choice you didn't want much of the paperwork and then wanted to be more technical uh, any thoughts or uh, inputs that you can share yes. yeah so no i um, i totally believe that it's uh, uh, no it depends on uh, the person involved in fact i consider not being able to do certain things as my weakness it it requires a huge perseverance and skill to be a project manager you need to drive people you need to no so i i take typical example of dr kota harinarayana the way he managed at national level different organizations and some people are very tough uh, no it takes a lot to move them and uh, there are organizations who are i don't say that they are not good but it's just that maybe their priorities are different to ensure that they meet your project timelines and uh, you know they don't get digressed into what is more important for their own organization or it it requires a huge amount of people skill probably i didn't have that 
so uh, i'm not saying that that's good or bad or anything at all some people are meant for that some people are not meant for that probably i was not meant uh, that way unless you are at a project manager level in most of the organizations uh, so i'm not saying this as a, a complaint because i had my share of a uh, share of recognition in the rdo i got some awards and dr kota knows me today by uh, name and face so that itself is a big achievement you know but you get real satisfaction of being able to get something done only when you are in a project management level technology um, sometimes can be overruled you may have great ideas but if somebody doesn't feel that it fits into the program uh, no it may not be taken and things like that so there are but i guess uh, it happens uh, both ways sometimes good sometimes bad for people who are young i have one very serious i should not say complain but uh, i i i do know you hear it and then you decide what to call it expectation i <laughs> no so the problem at our generation was that we did not have information we did not have exposure we didn't know what to do but today the problem is that the exposure is so much that many people are totally confused and they don't know what to do even when they come to me like you no know, in my company they feel that when they want to do computer vision it's only writing two lines of open cv code that will give them the next job they do not want to do a system thing where you have to make a system. like i keep telling them you can't take your laptop and put it in the car and take the camera feed and tell you that this is the road Mm-hmm. you have to make a system which will also have to be ruggedized which will also have to be made real time you'll also have to ensure that it works in various environmental conditions weather conditions nobody seems to have patience for that mm-hmm. and they train one model they are ultra excited because now they can write two extra lines on their resume i don't blame them it's probably because of the way the environment is getting created there is there is a lot of fog a lot of fog and somewhere i think we should make in, take initiative to clear up that fog give the right orientation to these kids and uh, no uh, even educational institutes that uh, even the many of the institutes don't know today what is really required in the industry and i do believe that now the time has come to like computer science was never a subject until 85 86 87 it was all electrical engineering ece uh, no all of that it grew at after that today i think the time has come when computer science needs to split it's no longer one subject so we need to have uh, specialists but then uh, very sound deep specialists in you no know, various areas so that's that's my uh, opinion on that i think that's about all the time we have for this conversation but i have a lot more questions i'm sure uh, i've also been trying to reach out to ramesh also to talk Okay, let's see how far I get with that. Um, sure, certainly, certainly. Then, I'm sure that you now there are more topics that uh, we'll probably catch up. I would definitely like to have a follow-on conversation some after maybe a few months. Sure, yeah. sure. Thanks, Nita, and all the best for your. Thank day. yeah, thank you, Shiv. I mean, very interesting to know about your work. I was looking up uh, some time back, and it was a very interesting experience for me as well, recalling all of. Uh, old work yeah. thank you thanks a lot thank you.
We thank Siddharth for the music and Anita for promoting the software people stories. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcast@pm-powerconsulting.com.